Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Power in Weakness, with a message entitled, Yoked to Jesus. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 1, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Have you ever wondered, what is the greatest threat to the Christian church? You think it is, well, persecution. After all, if the state passes laws against the spread of the Christian faith, or if Christians are being prosecuted, or if the government doesn't intervene when extremists attack the church, that's rightfully a threat. Yes, of course it is. But some of us might think that living in the Western world with its emphasis on an ever-increasing secularization, and with that, the insistence that everyone adopt the same syncretistic amoral perspective, that's a great threat to the church. You know, this makes Christianity appear extremist to the wider culture. But how about this? To what extent is the greatest threat to the church not from the outside, but rather from the inside? You know, perhaps as you see it, the problem is disunity or even the lack of love or an unwillingness to reach out in love to those who have never heard. I mean, surely that too represents a threat. Now, one more threat, false teaching or false teachers. How big of a threat is that? See, I would contend that the massive, and here I mean massive, fall-off in the West, a fall-off of people identifying with a local church, that almost all of that is related to liberal Christianity. What has been called the mainline denominations have almost all been taken over by liberal Christianity, and in consequence, they have been hollowed out and left with buildings that almost no one attends. See, it wasn't the culture that created a massive fall-off. It was the liberal theology within the church. And the modern era has demonstrated not the lack of interest in biblical Christianity, but the abject failure, the unmitigated bankruptcy of liberal Christianity. Why was that? You know, part of the answer is found in our text today, and I'm reading 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make a dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, as we examine this passage, it's key for us to ask and and to answer what Paul is talking about. Or to put it another way, whom is he addressing when he speaks to unbelievers? Does he mean anyone who's not a Christian? I mean, don't be unequally yoked together with all non-Christians. Is that what he's saying? Now, if he is, we can see here that quite easily, This passage is often applied to two different areas where Christians form intimate relationships with non-Christians. You know, the first is in marriage, and the second is in some kind of a contractual relationship, especially in business. 
Now, regarding Christians marrying non-Christians, I don't think we need to appeal to this passage to make that point. You know, the First Testament forbids the marrying of a believer with an unbeliever. That's so in, in Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. It's found in Joshua 23, verse 12. It's also found in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, other, other passages as well. And in the New Testament, the matter of marrying a believer, well, that's simply assumed. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? I hope you heard that, a believing wife. Or in 1 Corinthians 7.40, a widow is told she may remarry, and then Paul adds, only in the Lord or only to a believing husband. You find the same thing in the very famous passage in Ephesians 5. It's the passage regarding Christian marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And then, if that's not clear enough, summing it all up, Ephesians 5.32, Paul will write, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is to say, the very nature of Christian marriage is that it reflects the heart of the church. Christians, therefore, marry inside the faith. Now, obviously, in the time of the writing of the New Testament, it was common for one spouse to convert to Christ and the other would remain unconverted. Well, in that case, the New Testament urges no separation to occur where it's possible. But I'm getting too far afield. The point I really want to make is that even though the Bible makes it clear that believers are to marry only believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 is not necessarily a statement that's intended to be applied to Christian marriage. However, I need to also say that I don't think we're doing violence to this passage when we apply 2 Corinthians 7 to Christian marriage. Okay, all of that, let's get back to my point. What's this text all about? Are the unbelievers mentioned in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 14 to be understood as all non-Christians? Well, let's compare this passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. So that passage says, and Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. See, I think it's fair to say it's impossible not to enter into multiple, shall we say, yoked relationships with people who don't share our faith in Christ. For instance, that happens at work. If you're a school teacher, a firefighter, a nurse, a mechanic, a builder, whatever you do, let me suggest, if you are not in full-time Christian ministry, I'm going to guess that on multiple levels, you're yoked together with unbelievers. It's so by necessity. As Paul already told us in his first Corinthian letters, if you think not, you're going to have to leave this world. And furthermore, don't you think it's important for Christian people to form deep friendship with unbelievers, interacting with them in multiple spheres of public endeavor. Well, of course it is. Well, since that's the case, what's Paul talking about here? Who are the unbelievers he has in mind? Well, first, in order to answer that question, please understand that everything we've been reading up till now, I mean, in the second letter of the Corinthians, well, it has to do with the church as a whole. And furthermore, we've also noticed that the problem has been that there were some in the Corinthian church who absolutely despised Paul. 
Now, how can he be a man of God, they asked, if he's suffering the way he does? And so these people, that is in the Corinthian church, were urging a complete rejection of Paul. And then we also notice that Paul has been making his case. He's taking on the false teachers who have infiltrated the church. You know, if I had the time, I'd show you that that as we carry on the reading of this letter, when we get to chapter 11, where Paul strongly warns against those people who are teaching a counterfeit Jesus. Then when we get to chapter 13, we would notice that Paul urges every single person in the Corinthian church to do a self-examination to see if they are truly in the faith. See, for all of those reasons and more, I argue along with most Bible teachers that the unbelievers Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 7, 14 are actually the false teachers, those whom Paul would later call false apostles who have infiltrated the fellowship. And shockingly, at least from our vantage point, he calls these false teachers unbelievers. And they were. We know that the Judaizers were arguing that unless a Gentile was circumcised, he can't be saved. That is, they argued that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient to forgive you of your sins and to save you unto God. They argued that one is saved not by faith alone, but by faith and or plus keeping Jewish laws, especially laws regarding circumcision and Jewish dietary restrictions. And in Galatians 5.12, Paul says those guys constantly talking about circumcision, since they like cutting down there so much, I wish they'd go all the way and emasculate themselves. <laughs> you know he, what he means. He means castrate themselves. Paul has no time for these people. He hurls abuse at them. He doesn't treat them as brothers in Christ. He treats them as enemies of the gospel. And if that's right, the command in 2 Corinthians 6.14 is the command not to be yoked together with those who teach a false gospel. And why? Because they're actually unbelievers. So when Paul says, don't be yoked together with them, do you know that other translations that are more paraphrases say, don't become partners with those who don't believe. Don't you dare form an alliance with someone who doesn't hold the one true historic faith once for all delivered to all the saints. Bible Canada is all about Bible teaching. That's our passion, our legacy, and our continued mission. Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld studies, prepares, and presents a verse-by-verse understanding of the Bible, and God is changing lives. So we're excited to announce a brand new resource for 2020, the Back to the Bible Canada study series. It's a six-week Bible study video series designed for personal and small group use. Bible teaching at its finest that includes Bible teaching videos, discussion questions, and notes that engage the participant in a verse-by-verse study and greater understanding of the Bible. This series will be made available on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel and by visiting backtothebible.ca. And remember, every resource is available for free as the result of partners like you. Your gift is so appreciated. To learn more or to give today, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Deuteronomy 22 verse 10 says, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. 
you know, the implication there was that you shouldn't yoke those two animals together when you plow your field. So why was that in the law? Well, for two reasons. Well, one reason is the more obvious and practical reason, you know, a yoke was a wooden tool. It was a wooden cross piece that was placed over the heads of two animals, and then a metal U-shaped device was placed under the necks of those animals. And then the yoke would be hooked to a plow so that the two animals would combine their strength and pull that very heavy load. So it works very well if, <laughs> the key word is if, you can get those animals to work in concert with each other. But if you put an ox and a donkey together, well, you should imagine the result. I mean, the animals are of a different size. They have different degrees of strength. They have very different temperaments. And soon the yoke is going to jerk backwards and forwards and it's going to chafe the animals. And the whole exercise is going to end badly. So that's the practical reason why you don't yoke those two animals together. But there's another reason as well. Not only does Deuteronomy 22 forbid you from yoking two kinds of animals together, it also forbids sowing your vineyard with two kinds of seed, as well as wearing cloth of wool and linen mixed together. And the reason for those commands was so that in everything they did, Israel was to remember that they are not to mix things that don't belong. And specifically, that meant don't mix the worship of God with the worship of the gods of the nations around you. Everything but everything was to remind the faithful that he or she was not to mix his or her faith with the religions around them. And that's what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians 7.14, using the idea from Deuteronomy. He points out that the church is never to mingle the truth about God with false teaching. You know, I remember years ago, a Christian magazine that we used to keep in our church foyer. See, on one occasion, they had a series of articles in favor of a very radical anti-Christian teaching. And the minute I saw those articles, I called the magazine and I canceled it from our foyer. Well, the editor called me back and we had a conversation. It went like this. He said, are you so afraid that people in your church are going to read something different than what you believe? Well, I laughed and I said, are you kidding me? My people all have television and radio and newspapers. They've been to secular schools and universities. They're inundated with ideas that are contrary to the Christian faith. They literally swim in a culture filled with sensuality and unbelief and mockery of the most holy faith and countless other challenges to the Bible. I, I repeated myself, are you kidding me? Do you think I'm running a monastery over here? And then I added, I have at my church hundreds of people who've been Christians for less than a year. And they're asking our church, teach us what the Bible teaches. Help us to know the way of the Lord. They didn't yet know what was true and what was false. And that's what my church was all about. And so the last thing that I was going to allow are false teachers in the form of your magazine in my foyer, subverting them when they're most vulnerable. And I went on because, you know, I was, I was just getting going, quite frankly. The last thing I'll do is to intimate that denying scripture is a healthy Christian alternative. I won't be yoked in a partnership with a pseudo-Christian magazine that confuses the most vulnerable members of my congregation. Now, before I move on, let me add a word of caution here. Paul has his sights set on the Judaizers. They've taught that faith in Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation. So, in essence, they were teaching a very different path to salvation than the one found in the gospel. Again, you know, a word of caution is in order. 
Paul's not calling on believers to separate themselves from everyone else who has a difference about any point of doctrine. I know there are people so narrow that if you don't accept their specific view of the end times, you know, you're probably not a believer. And others will say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. And still others, if you do speak in tongues, you're not a believer. I mean, I could go on and on. I think you get the point. Paul is not calling for believers to separate from those who may differ on an individual, non-salvific point of doctrine. But he is calling for believers to have nothing to do with those teachers when there is a central, salvific, or saving point at stake. Let me list some of those. The Trinity. If you claim to be a Christian but you reject the Trinity, you ought not to have access to any local church. If you don't hold to the full humanity and the full deity of Christ, but want to teach, the answer should be, not a chance. If you claim you can help people get saved, but don't teach the penal, substitutionary atonement of Jesus on his cross, well, you're not even my brother. If you fail to teach the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, Not one person should let you near a Sunday school class or a home Bible study group or a men's or a woman's group, let alone a pulpit. And furthermore, if you're leading people to sin either in attitude or in action or even in sexual purity, we will not be yoked together with you because we're not pulling on the same plow. You know, in Germany at the time of the rise of Hitler, Many German churches were being pressured by the Nazis to reject all believers who were of Jewish heritage. And horribly and tragically, catastrophically, it was the liberal church in Germany that agreed to exclude all Jewish Christians. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others were right to separate from the German Lutheran church and form a confessing church, a church that would welcome all who came to faith in Christ alone. Why? Because you can't, under any circumstances, be yoked to false teachers. And in our day, well, how do I begin? The ongoing struggle with liberal theology is still ongoing. Liberal Christians often deny that that God is all-powerful, that he rules over all. They often deny that the Bible is inerrant. They often deny that Jesus did miracles or that miracles are even possible. They often affirm abortion or homosexuality and other practices that are condemned in the Bible. They deny that our sins earn us eternal judgment in hell or that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. I mean, I could go on and on, and Paul would say, don't be yoked with them. Don't you partner with them. Now, now the rest of the passage that we have before us falls in line. You know, Paul begins by asking five rhetorical questions, all of which demand the same answer. The answer, nothing. Let's consider each one of these questions. Question number one, what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Nothing. Lawlessness is sin. Christ is righteous. Second question, what fellowship has light with darkness? Nothing. Third question, what accord has Christ with Belial? And the word for Belial is often a synonym for Satan himself. I mean, can you imagine a consensus between Jesus and Satan about anything? Fourth question, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? you share an inheritance with unbelievers? No, you do not. Fifth question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And here there's again an obvious answer. Christianity has no agreement with idolatry. And then having asked five rhetorical questions, Paul then goes on to quote from six Old Testament texts that reinforce the matter. 
The six texts in question, all of them taken together, are about God choosing a people for himself, separated and distinct from all the people on earth. When God formed a covenant community, he demanded that his people be distinct, given entirely to him. And then with that comes Paul's conclusion in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, holiness demands that we're yoked to the Lord and to that which is true. And here, I said this is where we began. This is the greatest threat to the church, not just in our day. It has always been so in every single hour. Whenever the church yokes itself to false teaching or false teachers, she lives in unholiness and she refuses holiness in the fear of the Lord. And if any local church or denomination decides that it will partner with those who deny the central truths of our salvation, in that case, says Paul, we have tried to marry light with darkness, true worship with idolatry, We have tried to get believers to feel comfortable with denying Christ. This our Lord and Savior forbids. And since he forbids it, we must as well. John, thanks for your message today. It conjures up all kinds of thoughts and all kinds of questions. And and I think it, it becomes quite obvious that we can't sort of fellowship and come alongside and, and walk with those that are teaching falsehood. I guess my question might be, how do we ensure, how do we protect ourselves against false teaching when we may not know what's false and what's not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that. Uh, We live in a day where I think the great danger is that, you know, we just get sucked into the syncretistic morass, which simply says, you know, anybody's as good as anybody else without asking the questions of what's biblical or even informing ourselves or being biblically literate enough so that we can identify false teaching when we come upon it. So if, if we're in that kind of a situation, it's very easy to get yoked together Christ and Belial in our own minds. We just take everything that happens to come along. So how important is that? I mean, Ben, that's a very important question because um, th- these are the kind of things that since we know that there is no fellowship with light and darkness, we've got to make those kind of discerning um, decisions all the time in order to stay with Christ. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Power in Weakness, on 2 Corinthians, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hey, this is Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible Canada. Take the opportunity today to sponsor a pastor to attend our June 2020 Back to the Bible Canada third annual Bible teaching conference hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India. Conferences will take place in Delhi, Hyderabad, and Chennai. Many pastors in India have little opportunity for formal education, so being trained and equipped can mean so much to their ministry. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor for only $55, which includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. Join us in this great cause of continuing to equip pastors in India. Consider sponsoring one or more pastors to attend the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit sendapastor.ca.